Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Our Reading Life in partnership with our friends from BiblioGuides. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft here with Sarah Masaryk, and today we have Tanya Arnold and Sarah Kim with us, as is our want. It is, it is. Diane, it is a little staggering to think about the fact that this is our eighth episode of Our Reading Life. It is. <laughs> what a crazy, wonderful thing that is. I, I, In some ways, that number feels really big, and in some ways, it feels really small. But to me, what it really feels is that we're We've fallen into something that we love and mm-hmm. we show up every month mm-hmm. more excited than the month before. Yes. I don't know, Tanya and Sarah, do you feel as well that this gets easier and more fun each month? Or are you starting to feel like maybe we should retire this idea? I'm enjoying it. It's <laughs> definitely keeping me reading. <laughs> it's easy for me to go stretches of time and, oh, yeah, I haven't picked up a book in a while with so many other things mm. happening. So it's been really good for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. I was just telling Judd, I mean, I'm a little competitive. (laughs) And so I was like, I have to put in like two hours a day. I need to pound out like one or two children's books a day for a year. And then I'd have like over 700 books. And then I'd be maybe reading as fast as Sarah Mazarek. (laughs) And he just looked at me and he was laughing. And so then he came in the other night and he wanted to talk to me. And I'm like, shh, this is my reading time. Like, you've talked to me all day. This is my, like, 45 minutes or whatever that I've set aside. <laughs> but I love it. I like I like the challenge and I like the getting really excited about choosing mm-hmm. which things throughout the month. Because mm-hmm. I it changes yes. as I'm reading where I think, oh, I'm going to highlight this. And then I read something else and I think, oh, no, I want to talk about this. I have two things to say about that. <laughs> First, I have a calendar and I write down – I have a specific work calendar and I write down in it – what I plan to talk about for our reading life and for our librarian life so that when something is really exciting, I'll go and capture it, knowing that then we can talk about it whenever we record. And I find each week, I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) no, not that. No, not that. Because everything I've been reading since is more and more exciting each month. So I find that very funny. (laughs) That what you say, you're right, that the more we read together, the more I'm like, oh, no, 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 I should really talk about this one, not this one. And I don't want it to be a data dump. I don't want to come and say, these are the things I've read. But I think it's hilarious that you think that I'm reading more than you because <laughs> it was so funny the other day when you messaged me and said, so have you read such and such? What, or what did you think of such and such? And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't read it. And you're like, what? I thought you read that one. I'm like, no. And you said, Oh, I only read it because I thought you read it and I was behind. (laughs) No, true story. (laughs) Sarah marked her name to review that she would write the review for a particular book that we're working on for the Newberry Project. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go read that book. And then I read it and I was so excited about it. Then I was like, okay, so what did you think? And you were, you said to me, oh, I haven't read it. And I was like, what? I read it <laughs> because I was pacing with I'm you. Like, no, no, this amazing project has invited me to go back and either reread books that I haven't reviewed or read books that I've never read that I've wanted to read, you know, and we're, we're teasing people. We haven't really told right. them what we're talking about yet that this Newberry project, this Caldecott project. We haven't really said what that is. It's a project in development. <laughs> we are reading 
fast and furiously right now for a couple of projects, as a matter of fact. We have three big projects in the works that are sort of collaborative between us, and you'll just have to stay tuned to find out more as the projects unfold. So, Sarah, why don't we start with you because Yuna's taking a nap. What did you read this month? I pretty much read for fun. I didn't read for a project. Yay! That's great. (laughs) I think our whole team or most of our team has read A Place to Hang the Moon Mm. by Kate Elvis. I had not read it yet and everyone was raving about it. And we were putting together the historical fiction list. Yes. Books that we we liked that had been published since 2000. And this book was on it. it. Reminded me about it again. And I was getting a stack of books from the library to do a little post about that and I decided to read it and when I first looked at the description of what it was about and started it I thought I don't know this looks like it's going to be really predictable Mm -hmm. what's going to happen and it was Mm -hmm. but it was delightful I loved it yeah so even though like yes the outcome was what I thought there was still like moments throughout it and I think the character development was really amazing and the sibling relationships were really beautiful and their situation felt realistic like the kinds of families that they were with and the time and what was happening and so I I thought it was great I really enjoyed it and I don't know have all of you also read it already (laughs) I'm like late to the party no and you all have been talking about it and Tanya's like what do you mean you haven't read that (laughs) like I haven't and and I have to say like the cover doesn't draw me in at all especially the cover Mm -hmm. on the audio. So the cover on the audio is kind of cartoonish. And I thought, I don't don't feel super excited about that. But then hearing you all talk about it and looking into it a little bit, I I went and bought it. So it's on my list for very soon. (laughs) Just haven't done it yet. Have you read it, Diane? No. No. Tanya's read it. I know. I love it. And I do think that the cover for the audio is not attractive. (laughs) No. (laughs) I love the cover for the hardcover, though. I think it's super cute. Oh, is it on Biblio Guides? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That is adorable. Yes. Yeah. I think it's delightful, too. I think I think the writing is very rich. And the, like Sarah said, the sibling mm-hmm. relationships, just it's so mm-hmm. hopeful and life-giving to see sibling mm-hmm. relationships like that. And mm-hmm. I think they're orphans. Yeah. Right, Sarah? They, and for a long time, they were being raised by their grandmother. And then she passes away. That's kind of how the book opens up. Mm, okay. So what time period mm-hmm. are we talking about? World War II. They go to the country with the other children that are leaving London mm. to have a host family because they don't actually have a family. Right. See, and I, I'll talk about what I read later, but I did read Echo. And that reminds mm. me of the middle story of Echo with grandma raising the boys until she couldn't. Mm-hmm. So Sarah, you loved the story and you recommend the story. Yes. Great. I do. And so... The next book was Kate Albus's next book, <laughs> her second book that she's written. I thought, well, this book just came out this year mm-hmm. and I was seeing it on social media and people posting about it. And I thought, OK, we need to read this and review it and put it on Biblio Guides if we like it. So her second book is called Nothing Else But Miracles. And it also takes place. There's a lot of similarities um, with the characters. Like it takes place also during World War II. Um, but it's in New York City. The other book was in England. Oh, The children are not orphans, but their father has gone to war Yeah, in Europe so that the oldest brother would not have to. You know, one of them had to stay, obviously, to take care of the younger children and so would not have to enlist. But 
you know, they wanted someone from their family to, to be supporting the war efforts. And so the father goes, and again, there's three siblings, the oldest boy, the middle girl Mm -hmm. and the youngest boy. It's the same as the other book. Mm -hmm. And he's, I think 17. So not like legally supposed to be the guardian of these children, but he is taking care of them. And sort of the premise is that the father tells them like community will help take care of you. I didn't love it nearly as much as a place to hang the moon, but I think there's some really positive aspects to it. Again, like the sibling relationships, Mm -hmm. there's more fraughtness between them, especially the oldest and the girl, because he's trying to act like a father and she just wants her dad back. Yeah, She's strong-willed. She's pretty independent. She has good ideas. And her brother is more like feeling the weight of responsibility and being more cautious and like that kind of thing. And I guess another, I don't know that this gives away too much. I think this might even be on the dust jacket, but they're living in an apartment in New York City and they have a wonderful landlord. And soon after their dad leaves, their landlord dies and they get an awful landlord. Oh, no. And they end up in a situation where they need to find another place to live. And um, and so there's kind of like an element of mystery. There's some really fun things that like I looked in um, the author's note and there's like this kind of building <laughs> that actually existed where they end up staying. It, 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 I don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't read it. So there's some really fun aspects. The parts that I think kind of bothered me a little bit where because she was so strong-willed, she would go out on her own and do her own thing. Oh, she would lie about where she was, yeah. she, mostly to her brother. So I kind of struggled with this. I think it it could be a good book club where you're having conversations with the kids about why she's doing what she's doing. Sure. And was it a good idea? Did she have any other options? Like they don't want to be leaning on their community so much, right? like getting handouts. They have certain values you can see that they're trying to live up to, but also in this really difficult situation. And she's just kind of living her own life but again like her it's her brother like he's not really her guardian (laughs) right but so it's just this awkwardness right um but she does lie to him and to other people and you know will go out and convince her younger brother to go spend some money on something when they're trying to like save their money and so there's like some aspects here where those kinds of decisions of hers actually end up in positive outcomes for them Mm -hmm. as a Mm -hmm. family you kind of just think like she needs her dad (laughs) like that was just my whole thought like the whole thing like yeah, you're in a tough spot. You need your dad. And you just don't know, right, by by the end of the book, will she be different when her dad is back? You know, will there then be authority? Or did she get rewarded for this? Yeah. So there's some aspects like that. There's a little bit of romance. Like she, there's a boy in her class that really likes her. And like she ends up dancing with him at a dance. And I think he kisses her at one point. And then her older brother also likes this boy's sister. Mm. And they hold hands and it's, it's fairly innocent, um, sure. but just so parents know. I just have one question, Sarah. When the dad leaves, is he making it kind of clear as to that the 17-year-old is to leave mm-hmm. the family? Because I have a large gap in our family. So I have adult children and then children who are children. And it is a sibling relationship and it can be complicated. But at the same time, in my absence, mm-hmm. the older child is the responsible party. And they are in charge. And we, you know, we love watching Phineas and Ferb. And the parents always say, Candace is in charge conditionally. And so it's kind of a joke in our family. You're, you're in charge conditionally. <laughs> Which is kind of that, it's kind of that, it's showing that balance between you are in charge because there has to be someone yeah. who has a more fully developed brain being in charge and who can actually drive you to an ER or call right. 911 mm-hmm. or do various things. 
but at the same time, they are not the parent. Mm -hmm. And so it is conditionally. (laughs) And I just think, like, did the dad in the story make it clear that he wanted them to work together or that the older son was? I'm trying to remember exactly. I think basically he, the father, proposed this solution because he wanted his son to be able to finish school, get a job. He's like, you're going places. Like, I don't want you to go off to war. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. he asked him, can you take on this burden kind of a thing? Like, or not, I don't know if you think he used that word, but like, can you, can you take this on? Like, do you agree to this situation? And the older brother says yes. And the middle daughter kind of resents her older brother for agreeing to it. She's like, why did you ever agree to that? Like dad should not have left. Mm. And by sort of like almost at the end of the book, like she has a much better understanding of her brother and her brother like tells her like, I didn't want to say yes. This is not what I wanted either, but we're in this tough situation. I think in addition to like strong-willed, she's very proactive. And so she does actually help them get out of these tricky situations Mm. where the older brother is not really prepared or doesn't know what to do. Oh yeah. And so even though that involved her kind of going around his back and Mm -hmm. doing things without telling him or lying to him about where she was, it ended up that she was able to help them. So yeah, that's kind of the, again, it would make a great discussion. Yeah. sounds like it. Yeah. No real challenges with the book, just some nuance that Mm -hmm. merits some discussion. Yeah. And it doesn't have that. There's still like a love of books that comes through in the story, but it doesn't have that same like I don't know, delightfulness Mm. that her first book has. It has more of a little bit of element of interest and um, mystery. And the author actually tells you as the reader something, kind of inserts her voice into the middle of the story at a few different places to tell you something that you're like, oh, why don't they know this? Like, how come they couldn't find out? And then like, even by the end of the novel, they don't find out. So it was just like a side thing. Like, oh, if they'd known, things oh. could have been different, but they didn't know. And they never knew. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Maybe they'll know in the future. Oh. Well, that's <laughs> so an interesting, interesting technique. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh. Another interesting aspect of it that I'm not sure what to think about it. <laughs> if I appreciated knowing that or not. <laughs> Very interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, The only other book that I've started is To Say Nothing of the Dog, Mm -hmm. which I will not finish and probably won't be at the book club, but I'm trying to read to enjoy listening to the book club. Yay! (laughs) And I think I'm only uh, four or five chapters in. It's I had no idea what it was about. Yeah. So I'm like, whoa, this is very interesting. <laughs> and I just, I want to warn, because this will come out before that book club will come out. And I, I just want to stress the first four or five chapters are very surreal like what Mm -hmm. is going on I promise it's Mm -hmm. not like that throughout it is just they have to set the stage and poor Ned Ned is time lag yeah it's a whole different yeah time period (laughs) and everything going on and yeah I needed that encouragement because I told Sarah this is exhausting I'm not sure Mm -hmm. I can read this whole book if he if he's constantly doesn't know who he is, where he is, what's next. You know, I, it's just I can't follow right. this non-linear. Right, thinking. you have no idea what's actually happening. <laughs> yeah, and I don't care <laughs> if it's going to keep going like this. Right, and if it, if it continued like that, you wouldn't be able to drive the plot forward. No, but mm-hmm. how brilliant an author is she that she can make you feel that exhausted? You you are feeling sympathy oh, with Ned. Yeah, you, I'm time lagged. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're feeling time lagged. 
But once he's once Verity shows up in a meaningful way, his time lag is just not that big a deal anymore. And then she has moments of time lag later on, but he can spot them. So like we're not viewing it through his perspective anymore, which is a relief. <laughs> mm. But yeah. I will keep going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the the thing to think of is when you're think when you're reading this book, ignore the fact that it's time travel. Ignore the fact that you would find it on the sci-fi shelf and think of it as the importance of being Ernest, Jeeves and Wooster and Agatha Christie all in a blender. <laughs> <laughs> and then it'll it'll start to make more sense and be more fun. Well, I'm enjoying it so far. It's different. I just don't know if I can picture Agatha Christie in a blender. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody can put that author in a blender, it's Connie Willis. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sarah, last month you read The False Prince, and I read The False Prince. Yeah. Did you ever reach for the second book? No, I didn't. I, I did, and I returned it. Really? Yes, the first book was so elegant and interesting and compelling, mm-hmm. right? It was romantic mm-hmm. and, and medieval and exciting. The second book was like, oh, we're just doing the same plot again, but now it's more whiny. <laughs> and so <laughs> I listened to the first four or five chapters and then went and spoke with Sherry early and then found out that it had been a trilogy. And then she released a fourth book and then a fifth book. And I'm like, okay, what? Well, wait, I don't know what's going on here. But everything, all the reviews I read online also said, yeah, it's the same plot across all five books. It's just annoying. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so now you know that you're the king, but you're not going to fix this. You're going to just run away again. I think that's why I avoided it. I read the descriptions of the sequels and I thought, yeah. Oh. Not right now. Maybe later. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like one was a great book. She should have just stopped mm-hmm. there. I don't know. Maybe if you have a teenager who needs something wholesome to read, you could probably safely turn them loose on the others. But yawn. I had, be- I had better things to do, so I returned it. <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> Yay. And I have to tell you something about sequels. My grandson is staying with me this week. Since just for clarification, since you're the person with the last book club said you wished there had been a sequel. Okay, there's one. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe series is better because my grandson's staying with me this week and he was talking about reading stuff. And um, he said, you know, I don't remember exactly how he approached it in the first place, but he said, my sister and I both read The Boxcar Children and it was good. But then I realized... There's like 12 more, and I just couldn't do it. <laughs> yes, yes, you are my grandson. <laughs> he was just overwhelmed by the fact that he would have to read that many more. And I went, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so funny. Yep. He said, they should have just stopped. You're right. See, it's genetic. <laughs> oh yeah i mean i think that a lot of series shouldn't be series i love you know speaking of connie willis i love in blackout and all clear it's two books those two should be read together because nobody's going to buy a 1400 page book it merits the number of pages that it has that was that was really well done the other books to say nothing of the dog doomsday firewatch they're all connected but none of them it doesn't matter you can read one in love you can read them in any order you want the only two that have to be read together are blackout and all clear because they're one story across two volumes but the others they're just 
she just loved a particular thing and she leaned into it, but she told independent and complete stories in each of those books. That I really, I really appreciate that. I can go back to that world and visit it without feeling like I'm reading them out of order or there's pressure to read them a certain way. So if you read Blackout, does it end satisfactorily so that you wouldn't have to go on no. if you didn't want to? Oh, okay. Okay. No. You know you're you not no. done. It's Yeah. I mean, it ends in the same way that the Little Women half of Little Women and Good Wives ends, where you're like, uh, okay, well, I guess that's an ending, but I kind of want to know what happens. <laughs> or like the intermission so, and no. during uh, Gone with the Wind. Yes, at Ben Hur huh? or something. Yeah. <laughs> huh? What? Okay. <laughs> yeah. The, the way that Blackout ends, okay, well, it was all resolved in that the immediate crisis is resolved but the time travelers are still stuck in world mm. war ii with no particular way out and the other time travelers are trying to get to them if you stop now you're gonna lose a lot of the value and the other thing is sherry told me when i was starting to read blackout and all clear that she felt like this was one of the most sacrificial books she had read mm. in terms of fiction and what's interesting is that i didn't get that vibe at all in blackout but in all clear it comes through ringing like a clear bell and so i think you would really feel like you missed out if you stopped at the end of blackout so i have not read a place to hang the moon but it's on my must be done soon list and now that everybody's read it diane i feel like we got to read it well that's not everybody <laughs> so... if half of us has half of us haven't <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> um, but I just wanted to talk about a book that I read because BiblioGuides told me to read it. And um, this is kind of funny. I had never heard of, I thought I had heard of Echo. But like I have a habit of doing, I had conflated it with a different book. Both are Newberries. And so I had conflated Echo with Calpurnia Tate. And I loathed Calpurnia Tate. And so Tanya was like, hey, have you ever read Echo? I'm like, no, I hate that book. And she's like, what? No, that doesn't that doesn't compute. What, do you, what did you hate about it? Yeah, right? <laughs> I was like, try again. New answer. <laughs> what, what specifically Rewind, start over. did you hate about it? I said, what? oh, that's right. I was like, tell me what you didn't like. I'm like, well, it's just, it feels like it's just like this feminist nonsense. And you're like. Tanya's like, I, I I don't think you read Echo. <laughs> and I'm like, it's like set in the American South. And she's like, no, try Germany. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, definitely not the book I read. <laughs> I was just going through my brain thinking, which part none feminist? <laughs> thinking, did I miss something? Oh, so, I think it's that both covers have have like a woodcut style. And both have really bold colors. And so somehow, and they're both Newberries and they're not that far off in years. And so somewhere in my potato peel pie days, I saw one, saw the other and conflated them. So Tanya's like, yeah, bad. Bad, <laughs> bad, Sarah. So Tanya made me go get Echo. And wow, mm -hmm. wow, unbelievably good. Yes, right? so good. And I posted a review of it and almost nobody has read the review, but I didn't really promote it a lot. And we had been talking about other things, but oh my goodness, I feel like the whole world needs to know about Echo. It's so good. 
I will say it I had too. one struggle with it. Um, well, two struggles. One is a tiny thing and one is sort of like a, a, a structural thing. So the premise of Echo, and I won't spoil anything by doing this, but the premise of Echo is it follows three, basically, three children and the people that they interact with. It starts, though, with what is like an old German fairy tale. Three princesses, and they're ensnared in a spell. And in order to have the spell broken, the enchantment can't be undone until this magical harmonica saves the life of a soul. That's the that's the plan. And so this fairy tale penetrates reality through a boy named Otto. And Otto takes this harmonica into the real world so that it can be released to do to work its magic. So that's the prologue. And then it moves into Germany. And it's the story of a boy, Friedrich, who has a terrible birthmark on his face. And his sister is a nurse in Hitler's youth programs. And it's very clear that Friedrich, because of a medical condition and because of his birthmark, will have to have surgery to make sure that he cannot pass on his genetic failings. So... Or he could be sent to a concentration camp. And it follows his story with his father and his uncle and his sister. And then it stops. <laughs> it just abruptly stops. And that's the mechanical thing I really struggled with. It, it's like a cliffhanger. And all of a sudden you turn the page and we're now talking about two boys in an orphanage. So now Friedrich had the harmonica. It, he used the harmonica. The harmonica worked a magic, so to speak, in his life. Not Not like enchantment magic, just like a goodness, a power, a beauty kind of magic. And he then puts the harmonica back out into the world. And the next person who receives the harmonica is a boy who he and his brother are orphans living in an orphanage. And that harmonica works some powerful magic in their lives. And then he doesn't need the harmonica anymore. And so he donates it. And it goes to California, where a young a Latina girl receives it, and it ultimately is now almost to where it needs to be to do the thing it needs to do. And that's a fascinating story because she and her parents are original Spanish Mexicans. So they're from Spain many generations ago. For a hundred years, their family has been here. And they became American citizens when, when everybody in California became American citizens. But they are treated as second-class citizens in California, where they are. She has to go to a special school. Um, and there's just some really serious prejudice and issues of racism there, even though her brother is fighting in World War II for America. And they go to manage a farm of a Japanese family where the Japanese son is fighting for America in World War II while the family is living in an internment camp and at risk of losing their farm. And so um, her family is there to manage the farm and save the farm, etc. And the harmonica does what it's supposed to do. So each story, though, you get so involved, hundreds of pages involved into each character's life. And then, bang, stop, done. <laughs> You're like, wait, what happened? And then so the only real complaint I have is that the story, when it braids back together in the end, it's too little. It, 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 I'm, I'm 
can't even remember all the details of Friedrich's story anymore, and so on. And so that that's the only hardship. But it is beautiful to see how their lives do come together at the end. I would 100% agree with that, that the ending, it, it just needed more oomph. More magic. Just You wanted it to be... Yes. Yeah, Even bigger. though the way yeah. that the harmonica saves the soul is really lovely. It's super lovely. Yes. And it's unexpected. So and yet mm-hmm. when she does what she does with the harmonica, you're like, oh, I know. I know what's going to happen now. And so it does resolve mm-hmm. the way you think it should. And I can't help but think that his soul needed to be saved because they need, like, I just think there's there's stuff there. Like, I think these two souls are intertwined. But to see mm-hmm. the princesses enter into that story for a moment, it's just beautiful. Like, they're, they're midwives in a way. It, it's just really beautiful. Don't you think it also just gives you a sense of hope? And a yes. sense of belief that we're all interconnected yes. in some ways. So yes, it has this harmonica, but it doesn't feel contrived at all. Not real or contrived. You think there are there are yes. connections that we don't know yes. about that support us. And I I loved that. Me too. <laughs> Me too. And the writing is so rich. It is. It is not what we've come to sadly come to expect of YA. It's not. It's much richer than Jennifer Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Correct. It's much richer than most mm-hmm. current yeah, authors it, it for this has, age group. Like when she, I was truly impressed with the fairy tale at the beginning. and Oh, I loved it. Oh, I know, me too. And right now, <laughs> for this other project we're working on, I'm rereading Megan Whalen Turner's The Thief, which is a book mm-hmm. I have always loved. And I want to say that I think both of them do this very well. They create a mythology or a myth or a fairy tale out of nothing. Um, meaning it, they're not stealing it from somewhere else. And yet it doesn't feel like a ripoff. It actually feels really authentic and mm-hmm. like very pleasing. It, her fairy tale feels very Grimm's Brothers, um, but her own. But it, it has mm-hmm. all the hallmarks of a German fairy tale. It, do, it does not feel like a modern YA author was attempting to create a fairy tale in order to have that fairy tale element in their story. Like all these stupid fairy tales that are being retold. Uh, No, it's not like that at all. This actually feels like this is somebody who knows her craft and must really love fairy tales in order to be able to write this as beautifully as she did. Yeah. And when I share my book, because I'm going to talk about fairy tales Mm. also, (laughs) it actually reminds me of what the author that I was reading had to say about the musicality and the richness and just the lilt and the way it feels Mm -hmm. when you're the recipient of the storyteller. Yes. And that's what I feel like happened with Echo is that richness, that ancient richness came through in that story that she wrote. Yes. That that launches it in the prologue. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say another thing that she does so well in that same vein is she named the book well. Sometimes we look at titles and go, what? But like, okay, that seems like a dumb title. Echo, you're thinking, what does that mean? And I feel like she took the word echo and she allowed many versions of that word to really be resonated throughout that story. And I appreciate it. So when you say the musicality, the musicality of that fairy tale sends out echoes and reverberations 
throughout the whole story. I thought that was very impressive. And you, you're, as a reader, you're constantly thinking back to that. Yes. Because you know that's the prologue. Mm-hmm. So as you're reading through, it's it literally is echoing throughout the book for you. Right. And you spend the whole section with Friedrich wondering, is this the harmonica? It's that harmonica, <laughs> right. right? I think it's that harmonica. It's got to be that harmonica. And then you're thinking, well, where is that harmonica going to go? Like, does he go to America? Because you can see like ahead if you look at the chapter titles or whatever. You're thinking, where is this going? Oh, no, no, we're done with Friedrich. But the music is still playing. So even though these other lives have nothing to do with Friedrich's life right now, they will later. Well, and I think this is a good comparison between um, A Place to Hang the Moon, mm. which I love and is so delightful. But like Sarah said, it is somewhat predictable. Mm. I think there's a few things that you don't know. You're thinking, oh, how's that going to turn out? But overall, you get this sense of at least what you hope as the reader is going right. to happen. And it does come to fruition. In Echo, the whole time you're thinking, it's a mystery. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. What are we doing now? <laughs> well, and it's an old German fairy tale. So anything could mm-hmm. happen. <laughs> right? It could be bad. <laughs> it could be bad. And you're thinking, is Friedrich going to end up in a concentration camp? You know, you think of mm-hmm. all the different things. But there are, so there's one stylistic thing she did. I'm like, oh, funny. And then um, there is one thing also like a place to hang the moon. The girl at one point decides not to tell her parents what she's doing. She thinks she knows better. And she goes out and does these things that her parents have specifically prohibited her for her to do. So not only is she not telling, she's breaking the rules. So she's lying and sneaking around. It's short-lived. It only happens once. It turns out well, except, again, she's vindicated then. And so I thought, oh, it's just like a little seed of disobedience that just didn't need to be there. It's like a little bit of a zit on an otherwise beautiful face. Like It was like, okay, that's a bummer. Did you feel like there was a ripoff of Pollyanna in going on in the middle story? No. <laughs> Falling out the window, climbing down the tree. Oh, yes. And there was a lot of that. I'm like, hmm. Well, that definitely feels like <laughs> Pollyanna, Anna Green Gables, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. I felt like there was, you know, that orphan story. There was, you know, there's certain yeah. ways that that orphan story plays out. But I'm like, oh, so it's a woman who's adopting. It's just, it's interesting. So, yeah. But I mean, we are what we read. So I thought specifically also that she told boys stories particularly well. And I thought it interesting that a female author would choose to do two thirds of the books book dedicated to the voice of a boy. Mm -hmm. I liked that. I appreciated that she was able to pull it off. So that's the one of the big things that I'm reading right now. The other thing I just feel like the world, (laughs) my little tiny corner of the world needs to know about because I found this by accident. Now I'm not going to say his name right. I'm so sorry. His name, he's German. His books were originally published in German. And so he's like German, German. And I, I don't speak German. So I will tell you how it sounds to me, even though I went and listened to six different interviews where his name was said to try to mimic the voice. And I, I still can't say it right. But his name is Torben Kuhlman. And he wrote, uh, I don't know how many books he's written in total, but I know that there are five that have been translated. There are three mouse books that are a trilogy. And then there is one book that's a standalone. And then there's a book called Moletown, 
which is also a standalone. These books are amazing. So they are long-form picture books um, or heavily illustrated novellas. And they remind me of James Gurney's Dinotopia. They are really artistry-forward first, but with really, really adorable, creative, fun storylines. So the trilogy, the first one is Lindbergh. And there's this little, see, there's this, this one paragraph that says, Many years ago, in a country across the sea, there lived an inquisitive mouse. This little mouse was so curious, he would hide away, sometimes for months, to read great books written by humans. And it goes on that this little mouse, and by the way, the country far away across the sea, remember this is in Germany, so far away across the sea is actually America. So he's writing about mice in America. So these mice, they follow humans and they do all the same. They make all these crazy, wonderful discoveries just before the humans do. So it's actually the mouse who created flight before Lindbergh did. <laughs> and the Armstrong, the mouse Armstrong, he is the one who went to the moon before Neil Armstrong did. It's, so it's just really cute and fun. Um, Lindbergh, Armstrong, Edison, and then Einstein is a separate book. And that's a time travel book. And then Moletown. And these books have won all kinds of awards. They've not won the Newbery or the Caldecott because they're not American books, but they've won all kinds of other awards. And so they are just complete gems. Tanya, you found Armstrong for me, I think. Is that right? right. It was Armstrong. And that's the middle one, I think. And so you found Armstrong. You sent it to me. And I, I knew immediately we needed more. <laughs> So we went and got all of the ones we could get that were in English. <laughs> I thought your boys would love them and your patrons. It's they're just they're technical. So their yes. illustrations are stunning, but they're also very technical illustrations. Yes. So when they arrived, Michael sat down and I did not get him back for like three hours. He just oh, wow. poured, Michael's 16. Michael, who doesn't love to read fiction poured over these books and he and Jack have noticed every little detail in them. They're like Graham Bass with all the little details everywhere um, or like Denotopia with all this exquisite art and with highly, highly detailed. And so they're like, look at this, look at what he did over here. Or they, like they figured out on one of the pages that there's these four mice, but they're like, no, 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 this one is this one. And, and they, they just knew all these stories that are being told wordlessly. And I think Jack said Moletown only has like two pages with text on it. The rest is all visual. Yeah, I love that because it's really difficult to create a wordless book that is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he does. He does. 100%. So I am going to be reviewing these. I can't let my patrons check them out until I get them reviewed. And I've got little boys coming on Friday. <laughs> like, I need those books. So I've got to get lickety split moving on that. But we'll have these reviewed and up on our site soon. They are really, they are treasures worth looking out for. And don't you feel like people need to come and take a look at the review just to see the pictures? The pictures? Because you can't imagine. Mm -mm. Yeah. It's hard to imagine how stunning until you see them. Yeah. I've kind of enjoyed binge watching the videos on his YouTube channel, even though they're in German and I don't understand what they're saying. <laughs> I still find just watching the imagery very, very exciting. So that's 
that. I mean, I've been reading a lot of stuff, but those are the two things I feel like everybody needs to know about. Yeah. Amen. I'm glad you shared both of those. I'm actually really excited because the other thing is that this is a both Echo and um, these books are modern authors and modern artists. And I think we do have a lot of great illustrators right now, but he is especially top notch. Yes. So to bring him to highlight and to focus for people, especially for boys. Yes. Especially for boys. So Tanya, you said you were reading a book that you wanted to tell us about that will echo with the echo that I was talking about. It will. (laughs) I have a few, but I started telling you and Diane about this. And then we all said, wait, 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 <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> um, and I've shared a little bit with Sarah Kim as well, because I'm really having difficulty holding this one in. So I think we've discussed fairy tales and the importance of fairy tales. But I think sometime, sometimes we have this logistical problem of, okay, we know that fairy tales are important, mm-hmm. but what, what what should we read? And all of them, Grimm's and everyone, most of them are translations. There's mm-hmm. lots of adaptations. Yes. And so how do you find fairy tales that you'd like to read to your children? And I have a copy of Grimm's, I think it was called Household Stories, Household Tales, when it was originally translated. And there's some in there that are very, 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 I cannot say this enough, very dark mm-hmm. compared to other ones. Right. And so... And there's, and there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've just always kind of, I've read a lot of adaptations that are picture book adaptations to children with, you know, beautiful illustrations. And there's quite a few out there. Right. Well, I was doing some work for BiblioGuides on author Wanda Gog. Mm, and yes. that is how you say her name. It's spelled G-A with the, I don't know what you call the little character that goes over the A, G. So it's not gag. Mm-hmm. It's Gog. Gog rhymes with jog and she just had she won awards i think she won some caldecott awards for millions of cats or maybe she won a newberry for that so i was looking at some of her other works and what was in print specifically so she has a book called tales from grim i'm going to show you guys the picture so you can see it and it was published in 1936 and it's in print from i think the university of minnesota press. Okay. So I bought it thinking I'm really interested in what she has to say. She was born in Minnesota and was raised in a German speaking community Okay, in Minnesota. Gotcha. So in the foreword of this book, she has an introduction that I just want to read part of it to you. And then I want to tell you my experience with this book. And I also do not know how to speak German. So I looked up this word and I know Diane has some German ability, but I'm going to do my best to pronounce this. But this is the German word for fairy tale. Mm. She says the magic of Merkin is, or Merchen. What do you think, Diane? Well, it depends on whether you're from the north or the south. If it's high mm-hmm. or low, I'm going to say Merchen. The magic of Merchant is among my earliest recollections. The dictionary definitions, tale, fable, legend, are all inadequate when I think of my little German Merchantbuch and what it held for me. Often, usually at twilight, some grown-up would say, sit down, Wandachen, and I'll read you Merchant. Then, as I settled down in my rocker, ready to abandon myself with the utmost credulity to whatever I might hear, 
everything was changed, exalted. A tingling, anything may happen feeling flowed over me, and I had the sensation of being about to bite into a big, juicy pear. So doesn't that remind you of that, of Echo? Yes. That, that very first introduction, when you hear mm-hmm. that story, that's exactly how you feel like you're sitting on the edge of your seat and you're just so enraptured in the magic of the story. Right. Yes. So she says, when four years ago, I was in the midst of a Hansel and Gretel drawing, the old American magic gripped me again, and I felt I could not rest until I had expressed in pictures all that American meant to me. In order to be influenced as directly as possible by the real spirit of these stories, I read them in the original German. I had at that time no idea of writing my own text, but I soon found that I wanted to do this also. After choosing a group of stories, I made literal translations of them. Some lent themselves easily to this method and came out practically as fresh and lively as they were in the original. This was especially true of those in dialect. For because of their simple language and many repetitions, they were clear enough for any child to understand. Others which were smooth, warm, and colorful in the original came out thin, lifeless, and clumsy. It seemed evident that in case of the latter, only a free translation could convey the true flavor of the originals. I hoped it might be possible, and thought it worth trying, to carry over into the English some of their intimate me-to-you quality and that comforting solidity which makes their magic more rather than less believable. So she goes on, and she kind of talks about the stories she chose and why she chose them and how this translation process worked for her. And again, she went back to the original Grimm's brothers and she read them in the German and and it's coming from her childhood and then she writes these free translations and she illustrated them and some of them like one is Hansel and Gretel and you guys it's the most lovely Hansel and Gretel Mm. and it's also got all the aspects in it that are often really scary right and so and same with Cinderella like it has the aspect so one of the things she says is that um there was more than one Cinderella there was a Cinderella with a pumpkin and a carriage there were Cinderella's without that. And a lot of times what the Grimm brothers would do is they would take a lot of the different versions and they kind of made their own version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's not even that Disney did his wrong per se, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of ways that story has been told, but she wanted to do one um, that was more true to the ones that she had heard growing up. Mm -hmm. And so in it, the ugly stepsisters do chop off their heels (laughs) so I want to share that part with you so I have a child who's incredibly sensitive and we have actual literal nightmares from stories Mm -hmm. which means for days and weeks and oftentimes months Mm -hmm. she can't go to sleep we're up she's waking up in the middle of the night so I I understand the importance of fairy tales but I also think that there are children being born that have these incredibly sensitive spirits yeah and so I really have to consider how do I read these to her? How do I get these stories in her right. without creating what feels like trauma mm-hmm. and which makes my life incredibly difficult? Not only is she super upset, but I'm now up in the middle of the night and I'm too old for that. Like, right. truly. It's like what Margie says, Margie McAllister says about growth rings, but never wounding. That we want our children to be stretched, but we don't want to wound them. And so hard stories, fairy tale stories, they have the capacity to stretch them. But we have to be careful about translation, like you're saying, because if we wound them, then that's a scar. Yeah, exactly. So I want to read you how it tells the part of the ugly stepsisters in this version. Older sister tried it on first. Her foot was narrow, but too long. She had to nip off a bit of her big toe to get it in, but she didn't care. It would be worth it to be a princess for the rest of her life. 
When the prince saw her wearing the slipper, he thought she must be the right girl, so he lifted her on his horse and started off with her to his palace. But as they passed the hazel tree, Cinderella's fairy dove called out, Dee, rookety-goo, just look at that shoe. The prince glanced down at the oldest sister's foot, and now he saw a little blood trickling out of the golden slipper. When he asked her to walk on it, she could only hobble. The prince saw that he had made a mistake. He took her back and gave the second stepsister a chance. Her heel was too fat, so she had to nip off a little bit of it, but she didn't care. What was a little pain now compared to the glory of being a princess forever after? She squeezed her foot into the slipper, and the prince lifted her on his horse and started off. But as they passed the hazel tree, Cinderella's fairy dove called out, Dee, rickety-goo, just look at that shoe. As the prince glanced down, he saw that the second sister's foot was fairly bulging out of the tiny golden slipper, and that a few drops of blood were trickling out at the heel. When he asked her to walk on it, she could only hobble. So he took her back home and said to the stepmother, Is there another daughter in the house? Mm. Okay, <laughs> so isn't that... Okay, first of all, it's lyrical. Mm-hmm. It's magical. Mm-hmm. It's sharing kind of the gore of it, but it's not gory. No. And so it's... Ava and I read it and she's like, that's my favorite Cinderella. <laughs> I just love that Cinderella. And it, the same with Hansel and Gretel. It has mm-hmm. the aspects in it. Wow. So we keep continuing to read. There's 16 in this book. Mm. And we haven't read all of them, but we've read probably half. All of them. We love them. This is my favorite. Oh. This is my favorite edition of Grimm's Fairy Tales. Oh, and yeah. I... I think everybody should own it. So there you go. We will definitely link that. (laughs) Oh, no. Is that on BiblioGuides? Yes. Yes. And she also wrote individually. So this one. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Can you buy the fairy tales? Did she illustrate them too? This whole book is illustrated. Uh Black and white illustrations. So all 16. And then there's a second edition called More Mm -hmm. um, Tales from Grimm that has... I don't know how many in it. Um, and then she also did an individual book just for Snow White. Oh. And it was reprinted by University of Michigan Press, but it's out of print now. And that was done um, in objection to the Walt Disney version that came out. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I read online. I, yeah, I read online, so you know it's true, right? But no, I saw <laughs> right. somebody photographed a letter from Tolkien's letters, a letter that he had written saying that everyone should do themselves a favor and never watch a Disney fairy tale. He's strong. Oh, really? Tolkien despised what Disney did to fairy tales. I mean, Tolkien loves fairy tales and he loves the old ones, you know, the gritty ones. So I just thought, wow. And given all of our conversation about fairy tales to have seen that this last week, I was like, well, that's kind of interesting. So I'll see if I can find the source material for that. Yeah, and I'll find the quotes because there's a there is a story behind Wanda Gog's releasing of Snow White. Snow White, and she basically did the same thing. She went and read it in the original German. She did her own translation. She illustrated it, and it was released as an individual book, like the, the next year. I'm super curious to read her Snow White. I'm going to order it. It's on my list. Nice. I I got the the collections, and then she also released. Um, a book called Three Gay Tales from Grimm mm. that has three other ones. So she kind of, it's just interesting that she had Snow White individually and then she had three mm-hmm. in a book mm-hmm. and then she had 16 and then mm-hmm. some more. So she just kept kept going doing it. more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I just think her translations are rich and she's trying to bring back that feeling yes. 
and and she in in the introduction she goes further into where like I read this but where the direct translation made sense and where she had to then look for the words to give it the feel in English so you actually get that sense and I just think she did a marvelous marvelous job of it so I'm loving having these in our home this was like our our conversation with Michelle Howard recently in which she was illustrating the difference between a living book and a more modern book and one of course one of the most primary aspects of it is that a living book has the power to transport you it has the it has a very vibrant feel to it because it's alive the holy spirit is moving through it versus modern books which are factoidal they are here are all of the facts so here's grimm's and it's accurately translated like people are always so excited about accurate translations it's word for word what the author said but wait a minute that's not context because word for word in one language does not convey meaning for meaning in another language there there needs to be some help here and some appropriate filtering it's why you know when you're going to look for a copy of the iliad you you don't want there's a whole bunch of them out there you don't want there's certain ones that are really excellent because you want it to be accurate but also accurate in its meaning as well as its language yeah and actually i think this is an important part that she puts in the introduction Uh, she says the title she gives it in german which i'm not going to try and read (laughs) but it's nursery and household tales indicates that the material was not written exclusively for children the fairy tale age limit has shifted considerably since 1812 when these tales were first collected and has probably dropped two years more since I was a child. At 14, I was still avidly reading fairy tales and hopefully trying out incantations. <laughs> but in the, <laughs> but in this, right, and I think what she's saying there is the, magic the of age it. of it being mm-hmm. magical yeah. was still happening for her at the age of 14. Right. And I think we're losing that innocence and that magic. Mm-hmm. Children younger and younger and younger are becoming more of the world mm-hmm. at an earlier age. Correct. And not holding on to that childhood magic. Yeah. And that childhood. And I think that that is such a travesty and a loss. Mm -hmm. So then she says, but in this sophisticated age of the movies, radio, tabloids, and mystery stories, one cannot set the fairy tale age limit over 11 or 12. I do not believe in, quote, writing down to children. But since these stories were originally written to include adults, it seemed advisable to simplify some sections in order that a 4 to 12 age group might be assured of getting the full value of the stories. Mm-hmm. And by simplification, I mean, one, freeing hybrid stories of confusing passages, and B, using repetition for clarity where a mature style does not include it. Mm. And then three, employing actual dialogue to sustain or revive interest in places where the narrative is too condensed for children. Mm. However... I do not mean writing in words of one or two syllables. True, the careless use of large words is confusing to children, but long, even unfamiliar words are relished and easily absorbed by them, provided they have enough color and sound value. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. Isn't that fascinating? That's a beautiful thing. I love that. Yes, I love love everything she had to say. So I think she understands the importance of children. She also understands how the children need to hear the language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's not just an everyday translation no. by any shape of the imagination. Multiple times while I was reading, I would just say to Ava, we're just going to read one, you know, and we're going to read another one in a few days. And multiple times, whoever is in the house just 
finds themselves sitting down somewhere and listening to the story. So whether that's, I have, you know, my 20 year old son is home from college right now, multiple times he just sat down and listened to the story and engaged with the story. And I think that's how you know it's a classic. That's how you know it's timeless. That's how you know it's worthy of of your time and your heart. And I just think, and I just love that some of these, like my husband and my older children are getting these stories too, because they can't help themselves. That's the value of reading aloud when there's people around, even if they're, and I just think moms need to know this, even if they're not like looking at you and sitting at your feet, like if it's not that perfect picture, that's like a Jesse Wilcox Smith painting where the mom is sitting there and all the children are just up looking at her face. Like we all want that, right? <laughs> we all dream of that, that picture being like, oh, but even if they're not, even if they're busy doing whatever, or they're just walking by, or even if they're madly sitting, the stories are still getting in there. And reading aloud has the power for the story to get into you in a way that reading with your eyes alone does not. Because these stories need to be heard, especially when we're talking about fairy tales. They were designed for their lyrical value, thus implying music. Yes, Yay. absolutely. Yeah, so I'm going to share some other books next time, but they were yeah. parts of projects and things that, like I spoke to of at the beginning, the book that I thought you had read, but really I had read. Yes, yes. And you, yeah, you have some other really compelling books. Maybe I'll be caught up to you by then. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to go read some of the things you're reading and that Sarah's reading. And then if Diane shares stuff, because I'm always getting sidetracked by Diane's books. I think the book from last month that Diane had shared, I still on my list to read about the switchboard. And I am going to talk about that again because I finally finished it. Oh, good. Because I've been waiting. <laughs> so tell us about it, Diane. Okay. So switchboard soldiers. I picked it up because I'm always looking for some kind of good historical novels on world the World War One era, because I think very few people know very much about that. And it's it's terribly interesting, but it just sort of got sidetracked by World War Two. And this is about women. So the switchboard soldiers were women who were already they were switchboard operators for the telephone company. And when America went over to World War One, they put out a, a plea for switchboard operators who spoke English and French equally well. They had to be able to translate it and understand it and read it. So, um, and they were going to go over and be part of Pershing's communications. And so this author brings three girls together with different kinds of backgrounds in French. Two of them are actually from France and their parents had come over. And so it's, it's an interesting story about women in World War One because you don't think about that very much. And it really was pretty rare. And part of the motivation for these women was to be the first women in the army and be accepted as that and be respected as that and to pave the way for other women. So they were very conscious of their behavior and, and their performance because they wanted to show we can do this. And they just really wanted to be over there helping. So there's a lot of elements in it that are what I was looking for, but it's very long. So I'm going to talk about it like I didn't like it <laughs> and maybe make it sound like you shouldn't read it, but it just isn't what I wanted for now because I would love to have a book that was digestible for teen girls to, to get this information in them. And I felt 
that what the author did was kind of dump all of her research on us. And she also, I think she would have been better off just taking one woman or one group, maybe focusing on one of those and the group she was in, because these women were collected from all around the United States and sent through very intense training. And that's, that is interesting, but it, in a way it was like, okay, I, I get it that it was hard, but you're not telling me really what it was. I don't know now know how a switchboard worked. I just know it was hard, long hours, rough conditions, but I don't really know what they were doing other than they were connecting calls really fast. It was, it was very dense, but I didn't really love the characters either because they weren't well drawn. They were just, here's three women. They spoke French. They went through some really hard training. They finally, after halfway through the book, get over to France. There's just these minute details about the trip across the country on the train. And you're thinking, oh, now something's going to happen. Oh, no, wait. It's just some more training. Um, <laughs> oh. So it is, it does have the information that I wanted, but it's not very compelling as a story. Yeah. So it, it's not really like a novel. It's more. It was meant to be a novel. Well, it's a historical novel. Yes. It's just, I couldn't love any of the people the real action doesn't start until over halfway through where they they're finally the, they're in they get closer to the front the main characters kind of come together as a group and they start to be people rather than just stick figures going through the process it sounds like a research paper trying to be a novel that's a good way to put it because i really appreciated her research but I didn't feel connected to the characters or anything. And I read the newspaper clipping, the prologue, and the first two chapters. And I actually said, Diane, how how important do we think this book is? Because this feels dull and stilted and stale. And I'm not hooked. I'm supposed to like these girls, and I don't at all. I can't even keep track of who's who, and I don't care. Right, because they don't have personalities. They're just all really gung-ho to get over there. And it's hard on them. <laughs> so it sounds like this is an incredibly interesting story. And the research was well done, but she needed a better writer to tell the story. Like, the research is good. And the story is probably really fascinating. It's just, we needed a better... It's beyond an editor. It actually doesn't have a soul, is what you're saying. Like, it's a story that lost its soul somehow. That's it. Yeah, and probably just by trying to put too much in there because uh, there's, I think you could thin it down by two thirds and have a really compelling story. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> because the story you were telling last time sounded just so phenomenal. Where, because you were talking about how it takes these specific women who like miraculously have the exact needed skills. To come into place. Like they have the language skill. They have the switchboard skill. And you were saying it took it took a soldier, what, one minute to connect a call? And these women could do it in 10 seconds? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. Yeah. See, it just seems so amazing. It's like we could make a movie out of just that that little narration we just said. It's like that's movie worthy. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> right. And, and the other part that is, I, it's almost like there was a nugget that she wanted to get across, and but she couldn't not tell us everything she knew 
because part of it is how good they were at their jobs. And and General Pershing tells them that. And a lot of their commanders tell them that we could not do this without you. And then and and I'm I'm sure this was real because she was one of the women was an actual person and she took a lot of the story from her letters. The other two were were fictional based on a lot of her her information. But their commendations during the war from their commanders, I would imagine, was real. And when they say we couldn't have done this without you, that's probably true. But then after the war, and these women were they were they swore the same oath that the, that all the soldiers do. They were called officers and treated like that while they were in there. But when they got out, they were denied all of the benefits of having been in the army. And they were just treated like these phone operators who happened to join us and help out. What a truly fascinating and untold aspect. This would oh, have right. made a great landmark book. Right. That's and what this would have been great for. I was... I've done a lot of research on that era and never had heard about that, which is one reason that I was just fascinated with getting into it. Wow. Nobody talks about this. What kid is not fascinated by a wall of cords and buttons and women with headphones, you know, doing the thing? (laughs) Even Uhura on Star Trek is a huge hero and she's basically a switchboard operator. (laughs) Yep. Well, there is another book out there. Diane, you could always review another one. The Hello Girls, America's First Women Soldiers, tells that story also. Oh, okay. I was just looking at it. It's 400 pages. (laughs) But it could be, you know, it could be 400 better pages. I was like, oh, maybe it's a picture book. No. I will probably get that and try it because that's just one of those things that I think that we need to have more information on is like World War II was not the the first and last thing that happened to the United States. That's right. Yeah. World War Two mm-hmm. happened because of World War One. Right. But it overshadowed right. it. And we just kind of don't think about that. And I think we need to know because of the consequences. This happened because this happened because this happened because people keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. nothing new under the sun. Plus, I think kind of the timeline of it as well. I, I was trying to put myself in the place of the timeline. So when World War One ended in 1918, and World War II started in 1939, you're only about a 20-year right. difference. Right. So, so many people that lived through World War I were now living through World War II. So what would that, what would that have, like, what would your thought process have been? What would you have felt like if you were English or American or German or any one of those people? And I, just to put it, like, in context for us, I think um, – we had 9-11. Mm-hmm. Again, I know that that is not the same impact as a world war, but it's a, it was a huge event and it had a huge impact on Americans. Mm-hmm. 2001. And do you remember when we had the 20th year anniversary? Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, what if it was happening again today? Right. It doesn't, 20 years doesn't feel like that long. No, it does not. Mm. It's, and, it's, and I just thought it would feel like we just did this. Right. Well, we just did this. We cannot be doing this again. Right. And I just, and we were never going to let this happen again the great depression in the middle mm-hmm. like they had no relief no relief no, break no relief in the hard times so jack is reading the messner biography on general george Patton. oh it's firing on all cylinders for jack because it's world war one to world war two there's a very funny chapter title called and jack tells us this daily <laughs> chapter title is my tanks god bless them <laughs> <laughs> this is 
like the best boy book ever. <laughs> is there a landmark on Pershing? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I need to have that one, I guess. But I think we need to remember that World War One was called the war to end all wars. Yes, it was. There was exactly. never going to be another thing like that because we took care of it all. There was such a depression in Europe mm-hmm. when they were re-entering war. There was just a, a depressive state that hovered over them. And I actually think going back to Connie Willis for a minute, that's one of the things that also comes through in the blackout and all clear is that this is a really devastated country. It's a country that does not want to be at war and they are resisting it. Um, They don't want to be in this state because they've already done this and they've already lost a ton of their sons and fathers and brothers and don't want to do this again. And I don't think we talked about this. I'm going to make a note for it for next month. But I was reading a book called North to Freedom that was reprinted as I am David. I'm over the moon about this book. It takes place in 1952-1953. And it is a 12-year-old boy escaping a Russian prison Mm -hmm. in Bulgaria. And again, it's just I think we didn't stop to think that there were still some really horrific aftermath that was occurring decades afterwards for people. Yes. And that's what caught me off guard. What that reminded me of, Sarah, was that in 84 Charing Cross Road, she's sending those people food into the 50s, late 50s. Into the 50s. They're still under rationing. Yes. Mm -hmm. I never knew that. No. Until 84 Charing Cross Road, I didn't know that either. That, you know, 1953, she's sending ham and it's something they've not seen. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why is because you're in school and you study the, the war and it ended in 1945 and you're like, war over. Yep. Like we all move on with happy and lives And Americans now. mostly could. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And we're, we're reading this in a very sterile setting. Mm-hmm. This is, again, going back to our conversations about historical fiction and the importance of historical fiction. We need stories that live in us, right? So we all got an education by reading 84 Charing Crossroad. Mm-hmm. I am forever changed because I've read 84 Charing Cross Road and I will never not know how hungry the English were. So then to read the Ark and Rowan Farm and hear how hungry they were and to hear how many Germans were displaced. We're not even talking about East Berlin and and, and the wall. I'm talking about Germans that had been relocated because of the war and are now trapped because some were on the Russian side, some were, um, you know, in camps and they can't get reunited with their own families. They can't get back to their own territories. What a horrific mess there was for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just finding people. Just finding people. Mm-hmm. We And we see this in Lines of Courage, right? Where they on every, at every train station, there's a pole and everybody is pushing their note on the pole. Mama, this is where I am. And name and age, you know, like who you are. You're just leaving a note for your family, hoping your family will will come through that train station and see that notice and then stay or find you or whatever. Yeah, we can't imagine. We should probably eventually read more about the Red Cross. But I mean, the Red Cross also did location work. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, mm-hmm. you know, just so many things to mm-hmm. bring back stability. I think it's really interesting. I mean, I just think when we think Red Cross, we think medical. Right. And they that was... A large portion, but I think there were all these other pieces. There was food, the Red Cross, and clothing, was... and all those things. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. one thing mm-hmm. in the switchboard soldiers that um, struck me is that how involved in those things the YMCA was. 
the YMCA and the YWCA oh. are ever present in the places where those women were living. Even as, as they wow. got closer to the front, there's always the YMCA. Um, I don't remember what they called it, but the place where they could go hang out that they would bring them like they'd come up with a cup of hot chocolate where their rations, their mm. food has been horrible, or they could all go there mm -hmm. and get together and, and just meet and, and play music and dance or something. But they're, they're everywhere. Mm. And these are mm -hmm. not the people who are running those have nothing to do with the military. They're just people out there trying to help preserving humanity. And yes. And trying to help the, win the war. Yeah. Wow. Well, what else? Anything else that you read this month, Diane? Um, I'll mention two things that, because we're always looking for books for boys, we talk a lot about Gary D. Schmidt, and you're probably tired of hearing all of the different titles and what we like and how they connect and everything, but I had but read we first... we really do like them. Yes. <laughs> I had read First Boy with, for some reason, another sort of, oh, gosh, I, this probably isn't going to be something I love. Because it's supposed to be sort of a thriller. The first time I read through it, I thought, no, that's really a good book. But then I just kind of put it aside and didn't get back to reviewing it. So in order to do that, and because I have to take it back to the library soon, I read it again, just like all in one day. And I thought, <laughs> that has, it does have, as he promised in the dedication, all the different elements of the the thriller. You've, you've got the high speed chase, but <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say this. Okay. But the, the driver is the old retired female school teacher who is his neighbor who's been <laughs> helping him. And she everywhere she goes, she drives like everybody complains because she only drives like 15 miles an hour. We're going to be late. We're never going to get there. Well, then she ends up being the high speed chase driver. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> That's like all the teachers in Hercules Beale. All the teachers showing up with their caravans and minivans. Yeah. It's all the women yeah. driving their minivans. <laughs> but the main character in this one, and he's an orphan who had been living with his grandparents, and a year ago his grandmother died. And then at the beginning of the book, his grandfather dies. So he's really, really alone because he doesn't even know who his parents mm -hmm. are. And the community mm -hmm. comes together. The adults who live around him take him under their wings and help him get through what he's needing to get through. And it's just, even though the elements of the thriller are there and there's some kind of, you know, fantastic things that happen, not unbelievable, but they're only going to happen to one in a million people. Um, mm -hmm. It's really ends up being about loving people, even if they're not related to you, how the completely unrelated people can come together and turn into a family beautiful it really does end and up pretty that beautiful brings us all the way back around to the nothing else but miracles with the community taking ah, care of you yes yes <laughs> cool. i was thinking that too and also thinking about the whole orphan and grandparent thing it's like well sarah and i had books about grandparents raising kids who became orphans yeah, yeah. the other one was that um Sarah had messaged me one day and said, "Is are the Horatio Hornblower books okay for teens? And I said, mm -hmm. oh, well, I'm sure they must be. I mean, they were written a long time ago. I'm sure they're clean. And then I went and looked at them and went, oh, wait, 1950 was when the first one came out. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be clean. So right. I was going to go read one on, and just put it on my Kindle. And the for some reason, the cover they chose for that, or the you know, the cover photo is of a scantily clad woman. 
So I'm going, oh, dear. Well, I'll go ahead and read this and see if it's, you know, because there's a series. So if it starts bad, it's not going to get better. Right. Not going to get better. Right. So I did read it and I I was going, where's the scantily clad woman? <laughs> there's, there isn't one. There's a woman that is on a ship that a uh, hornblower is supposed to be taking somewhere. He's he's only 17 years old when he ends up commanding like a couple of prize ships. And he has wow. terrible things happen to him. I mean, he just like comedy of errors sometimes. You just are mm-hmm. waiting to see what ho- horrible thing happens. And every chapter is a different story of something that he's going through. But in the whole book, he's only 17 or 18. So he's a midshipman and he, he's trying to get promoted to lieutenant and he thinks he's going to and it doesn't quite work out. But he's learning things and interesting things happen. But anyway, on one of them, there is a woman who is supposed to be a duchess, but she's actually an actress who played a duchess a lot. And so she's pretending oh. to be one and everybody just goes, oh, if she's a duchess, we better treat her like one. But they don't really know. And as they're getting um, boarded by the enemy, he's getting ready to ditch some important papers into the ocean so that they don't get taken care of and she goes wait 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 let me do something for my country i'll take them and i'll keep them safe and he's trying to decide whether he can trust her because he now knows she's been lying about being a duchess and she takes them and hides them under her petticoats because nobody's gonna search the duchess right that's it but they do that is the no that is the raciest part of the story (laughs) Oh, that's okay. hilarious! <laughs> so every once so in a while, no safe for teens. <laughs> every once in a while, a couple, maybe two or three times, he says "damn" and "blast," because mm-hmm. really bad things are happening. <laughs> I mean, he's gonna right. he's gonna drown. So, <laughs> you did like it then? I you like the book? Yeah, I would say, and that they're good for teens. Like adventure. Yes. It's an adventure. It would be for older boys. You know, don't give it to a 10 or 12 year old because here's a 17 year old boy doing right. manly right. things. Yeah. So right. it's it's not right. going to be right. maybe even 14s too young. But for it, if you were talking about a teenage boy who liked adventure, I think they're safe. Now, I've only read one and they go yeah. on for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but the first book you read the all the stories in the first mm-hmm. book and yeah oh that's good to know yeah that's excellent tanya and sarah it's been a fun afternoon thank you very much i love that i didn't even really actually talk about the things i planned to talk about but then talking to you guys i remember the things i <laughs> did talk about anyway i i just love that this is messy <laughs> great. (laughs) So I have a couple of reading assignments that I've gotten from this episode. Since Mm -hmm. Tanya did not talk about one of the books that she wants to talk about, I will read that one so that we're caught up. And I do want to read Sarah's book. So there we go. Ladies and North to Freedom. That's the book I'm talking about that I'm going to read. (laughs) I am David. I know. (laughs) But then you have to read the one that I thought you read that you haven't read. All right. Which one is that though? I didn't get to talk about it, but friends, next month, The Trumpeter of Krakow. Ah. Yeah. It's so good. And I want to talk about it. Awesome. Okay. All right. We got a lot of reading to do. Well, ladies, we love this. Thank you for being here. And um, 
We're really looking forward to some of our upcoming book clubs and some of our projects that we'll be able to talk more about in the upcoming months. And uh, we are so grateful for everybody who's listening in. And we would love to chat with you. Feel free to join us anywhere on social media, but we especially invite you into the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network. As always, it's totally free. We just want you to be there. We just want to hang out. And we are so looking forward to reading more good books with you coming soon. So thanks, friends, and until next time. 